0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome best-selling author Robert Green. He is the author of some books I'm sure you've all heard of, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law. He is also on the board of directors of American Apparel, and he's been a consultant for over 10 years. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about the book today, The 48 Laws of Power. We're going to learn about Robert Greene and his life and work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Robert Greene to its rainmaking time. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: I'm delighted you're here. I have read Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I've read The Craft of Power.
1: I know that book, yes.
0: And The Book of Five Rings and The I Ching I've read. And so when I finally get to The 48 Laws of Power, a very... Extensively detailed book on power. I want to find out from you where you came to such depth and such a large range on this subject of power.
1: Well, um, it's a combination of things. Um, Some of it is uh, my work experience. Um, Since I left college uh, many years ago, um, I had many different kinds of jobs in publishing, in film. Um I worked as a, uh, dig- a ditch digger, uh, I worked at a detective agency. And in all of these places, uh, I was sort of very keen on observing the power game as it would play itself out. Um, it was something that people wouldn't talk about, and it would affect your life in a very deep way. Um, there was sort of these unwritten codes of behavior that you should follow. And it was just very mysterious to me. And so I was always thinking about it. And then on the other hand, um, I read a lot. I'm a big student of history. Um, I'm, uh, Machiavelli is one of my, my favorite writers. So through the lens of reading Machiavelli, people like Balthasar Gracion, um, and through my experiences in the work world, um, I just had all of this sort of stuff that was inside of me that wanted to get out. Um, and when the moment the opportunity came for me to write this book, uh, and I worked with a book packager um, who sort of uh, steered me through the process, it just all came out. And I did some research, but a lot of it was already there from, from years of experience.
0: It seems in reading The 48 Laws of Power that, it's full of great wisdom on one hand, and yet it seems as if there's a lot of distrust inherent in the meta-message, a distrust of people that have to be somehow dealt with in a particular way. Am I correct or am I incorrect in that meta-message?
1: I wouldn't I would, uh, say that that's not inaccurate. Okay. Um, I don't. Some people have said, well, you're, you're almost talking about being paranoid, and then I would say, no, that is not correct. Um, it, uh, some of it is a corrective uh, to our age, to the time that we live in. Uh, and so I'm sort of over, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And what I mean by that is because I, I believe we live in an era of, of rather powerful political correctness where certain things are not talked about. We talk about sex, we talk about money, we talk about this and that, but power is something that's almost a little bit dirty. And we don't want to talk about it. Bill Gates, he he has his giant charitable organization, and that's the the front that he gives to the public. And I'm not I'm not saying it's not real, but the stuff that he had to do to get to, to power, what he did with Microsoft, and all of the hardball maneuvering, that's the that's like a secret. It's like a public secret. No one wants to talk about it. And so we all enter the work world with this kind of built-in naivete, and we think that out of coming out of college or wherever we come out, that that people are sort of these nice people uh, creatures. We're all going to get along together. We're, we're all on the same team, trying to work uh, for, to put out a book or whatever it is. And then we're sort of usually, I mean, I hear the story all over and over again. We're we're somewhat shocked um, or blindsided by the political games, the political maneuvering. And we come to realize often sometimes too late that our talent isn't enough. we have to understand people we have to understand the political game being played so i'm going I'm just being a little bit going to the other direction to sort of correct what I perceive as a as a problem that we have uh, that I think is sort of cultural and comes from the times that we live in
0: the Analogies that you use throughout history, like talking about Napoleon and the distinctions between Tesla and then what happened with Edison and others, are very instructive. And I don't think I've heard it before written the way you've written it about what really happened in the power realm in those situations. Very, very interesting. Are you influenced by Chinese philosophy or the Chinese paradigm or the I Ching? Uh,
1: Very, very much so. Um, I was using the I Ching uh, since I was probably in college. I can't really remember, maybe even before, maybe even in high school. Uh, I love the I Ching. Um, It's not just simply a a book of prophecy or however you want to use it. It's filled with this amazing wisdom uh, that goes back thousands of years. I have this belief, and it informs all of my books, that people in the past Possessed a, a certain kind of wisdom that maybe sometimes we've lost touch with. Also, there's a there's a sort of wealth as treasure house of ideas that people have collected over the centuries. So sometimes these older books like the I Ching are filled with things that we we've just lost touch with. And I was very much influenced by the I Ching, and I think the structure of the book um, maybe unconsciously um, reflects that. And I you know I think I took sort of uh, Asian philosophy plays a very large part in the in the book because it's not that Asians are more amoral uh, than we are, if people classify my books as amoral. Um, it's just that they have a different approach at looking at life and not judging things and having a, a bit of distance and um, analyzing and seeing things through the lens of power. It's a whole tradition of that from Sun Tzu, as you mentioned, a bunch of strategists, Japanese and Chinese. So I'm very much influenced by that way
0: of thinking. I could feel the presence of the I Ching all over the place, contextually, the feeling of it. That's why I want to ask you that. Your book, The 48 Laws of Power, feels like a modern day, how do I say, upgrade. I've used the I Ching for 20 years, but for many people who aren't familiar with it, it's very dense, it's very obtuse, it's very hard to get doesn't fit within our paradigm, so a lot of people don't utilize it.
1: Well, I think uh, there's several things that influenced me uh, about it. Um, I think maybe the the style that it was uh, written in um, tried to get the idea of of, of a sort of a grand authority uh, coming through. The other thing that I love about Chinese philosophy and the I Ching is the sense that nothing is carved in stone. It gives you advice, but the uh, advice... It's very circumstantial. This is what you must do in this moment, but the next moment or tomorrow, you must do the complete opposite. Everything is in change, is in flux, um, and so nothing is set in stone. And your thinking must reflect life. You must never uh, do the same thing twice. It depends on your circumstance, um, and so sometimes there are things in the I Ching that completely contradict each other because you're not supposed to follow every hexagram. Literally, it's what comes up in the moment when you uh, flip the coins or whatever you use. Right. So in, in the book, I give the idea that there are laws of power that literally contradict each other. You know, attend, uh, court attention uh, at all cost. And then there's one later on about think as you like, but behave like others and sort of disguise uh, what you're actually thinking. Because it depends on where you are, who you are, what age, what kind of work, world you're you're living in. And then it, within each law, I have what, at the end what's called a reversal, in which I say, "Well, maybe you shouldn't follow this idea at all. In fact, you should do the exact opposite, and here's why you should do the opposite." So that you f- uh, freeing people up from the idea that, that there are formulas out there that you sh- must literally follow in order to gain power, because there are no formulas. You have to you have to be more um, sort of awake in the moment.
0: This book reminds me of a leadership philosophy almost love the part about law twenty three concentrating your forces. This is so obviously either used or not used in politics, in war, the activities that lead up to war, why people win and lose. Can you talk a little bit about the section on concentrating your forces law twenty three
1: Well it is actually a very important law. It's one I, I often highlight as as one of the ones i I follow very much and I think it's very relevant to our our day and age because I think A lot of people are suffering from being overly distracted Um, and it's in a micro and a macro level so on the micro level with our smartphones and our email and everything uh, our minds are in in three thousand directions and all the information available to us and on the macro level um, where our careers are never settled I mean we in the old days you know not only thirty years ago We would tend to work at one job for quite a long time with a sort of an overarching goal. Nowadays, companies have no loyalty to us, and we have very little loyalty to them. And we'll work one year at this, two years at that. We'll try many different things. It's very hard to concentrate and know what you're good at and sort of use your strengths and not be distracted and focus very deeply. And I... Uh, struggle with this every day as I'm trying to write a book because to write a book you must be supremely focused on one goal, writing the the subject that you're covering and and going into it as deeply as possible and constantly being distracted. And you have to learn to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to answer that email. I'm not going to go give this talk. Because um, in the end, you, the only way you're going to get power, the only way you're going to make something good, the only way you're really going to succeed in your career or at your job, is if you are really focused, know what you want, and concentrate on the things that you're good at. So, um, I and, and I follow. I've looked at many, you know, powerful people in the books that I've researched, and then people that I'm nowadays, and all generally have that trait. They're able when it's necessary everything else, and focus extremely deeply on, on what it is that they're doing. It's a very difficult task, and in fact, it's something I'm, I'm writing about in my new book, but that is one of the most important laws of power.
0: And I think it also is very applicable to politics and sending troops all over the world. That, to me, seems oh. a scattering of forces. Yes,
1: yeah, so that, that's even on the larger, uh, even more macro level. Uh, when it comes to the political stage. Um, and I could go on and on about, you know, the uh, um, United States, for instance. Um, I have a concept in in the war book called the center of gravity. It's not my concept. It comes from the great German uh, writer Karl von Clausewitz, um, that there's everybody has a sort of a center of gravity that is their strength. And a country has it. In the United States, it was our our wealth and our prosperity and the kind of model that we set up for the world and when we go around trying to be the policeman and sending our armed forces everywhere um, that center of gravity which is our wealth, our prosperity, our economy is going to suffer greatly and it's been the destruction of many great empires, we are, people don't like the word but that is what we are, uh, it was the end uh, of the Roman Empire um, sort of losing touch uh, with your, your source of power and uh, feeling like you're invulnerable and that you have become sort of the policeman for the world. And, um, you know, it started with, with George W. Bush and the two wars, uh, a major strategic mistake, and, and it's, it's ongoing. So this law, as you, as you point out, applies to you in your daily life. It applies to you in your career. It applies to countries. It's on a global scale.
0: I want to talk a little bit about Law 9, winning through your actions and not through argument and winning through demonstration. That's a really, really important point. And you also shared about not insulting people, how important that is. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Well, there's several things there. I was taking the second part first. A lot of people... um, have a bad idea about power or they have the wrong idea and they, they feel that power is, is somehow related to aggression, to violence, to anger, to pushing people around. Um, and so sometimes you'll find a, a leader or CEO or whatever thinking that by yelling or getting angry, um, they're showing their force, their authority, and in fact, they're showing their weakness, that the fact that they have no self-control. And generally, in a situation like that, uh, people lose respect for you. And so we have to change, the book is trying to change your notion of what power is. In fact, the indirect way of approaching a situation in which you're not going to literally force people to do what you want. You're going to find an indirect way of getting them to do what you want through, through insinuation, through subtle tactics, through uh, demonstrating what you want, that is to me the truly powerful and strategic way of, of, of getting to your goals. And it's very much in tune with the modern world in which people who are aggressive uh, are not going to get very far. And so, you know, insulting people, getting angry, they, all of these things are kind of going to reverberate and, and, and come against you in some way or other. And so you need to learn uh, to control that, and, and realize that that's weakness and not strength. As far as you know, winning through argument—that's just an, uh, winning through your actions. That's just another aspect of it. Um, I, I think of the example because uh, it's always better to show this by example. Um, John F. Kennedy, in, in World War II, had been involved in a accident um, in the Pacific in which uh, he nearly died, and he was extremely brave in handling the situation, PT-109, if you're familiar with it. Um, And then he wrote about it um, later on, or other people wrote about it later on. And um, when he was running for the president of the United States uh, back in 1960 campaigning, um, he would never mention um, this. Um, Other people would mention it, Or he would talk about the brave effort our troops were uh, doing, uh, all the bravery that he had witnessed in World War II and how it brought out the best of Americans. And by not mentioning himself, he made people think about him. The audience would go, hmm, but he's not talking about his amazing deeds. That's very interesting. First of all, it seemed rather noble, but also it made them think about it so instead of what politicians nowadays do, they, they sort of foist themselves on you and tell rag about, I, I wrote this piece of legislation, or, or Senator Kerry, I, I did this in Vietnam. He took this indirect approach, and it sort of demonstrated his own nobility and his own kind of character and his bravery, but indirectly. Demonstrating that indirectly is so much more powerful than foisting yourself on other people if, if I, for the, sale, the sales of my books, if you hear about it from a friend, oh, you should read the 48 Laws of Power, that is much more convincing than if I have an ad out there or you see an ad or, or something on the television telling you to buy this product, hearing it from other people it's a much more indirect approach. So, you know, knowing how to send out your message virally is another way of, of
0: approaching this. So you have an organic relationship to the realm of marketing and something circulating throughout the world, particularly your books. You are almost relating to your books as their own entities and letting them go where they will. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yes, I would I would say that. Definitely. You know, I don't know whether it's a question of, of sour grapes here or not, you know, where um, my books never really got a lot of publicity. I don't get uh, reviews in the New York Times or not been on Charlie Rose or all those other things. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm making a virtue out of it and saying, you know, it's actually in the long run better because it's sort of a stealth and underground uh, thing going on with the books, where it's mostly people hearing about it and talking about it, that its its name has spread. And in the end, I think that's more powerful. You know, um, of course, it always helps to have these these pushes and to be on television. I'm not against it. But in the end, I've come to embrace the fact that if the idea is really that if you do something strong and powerful, or that it's well-written or whatever, uh, it'll get out there eventually, uh, hopefully. I mean, I have, I, I'm i lucky to have a publisher, but um, so I, I'm, I'm basically sort of embracing a reality that I can't change.
0: It sounds like you're also utilizing law number eight, which is make other people come to you and use bait if necessary. <laughs> yes.
1: Are you? Yeah, yes, in, in a way. I mean, uh, some of it, you know, in life, you don't really necessarily choose everything that happens to you. And so, half of uh, the things that seem to be conscious are actually you adapting to the circumstances that are there. And so, because um, I'm not getting a lot of people coming at me, I've learned to make them come to me uh, as the years have gone by. Um, you know, for instance, uh, I used to work in Hollywood uh, before I wrote books. I wasn't very happy, I wasn't very successful. I was out there trying to push myself and get my screenplay sold. Now, I don't do anything. Now, they're coming to me, uh, trying to interest me in having my um, books made into a television series, for instance. And I just stand back and let, let that happen. I don't push myself at all. I let them all come to me because I feel it's
0: much more, it's a
1: much more powerful front.
0: Did you think that this would happen in your life where you kind of stepped into your destiny as an author? No,
1: I mean, um, you know, you always dream when you're a kid or when you're uh, in your 20s of the things that will happen. I had no way of knowing um, when I wrote the book because, quite frankly, uh, as you pointed out, it's a bit of a strange bird. It's a bit long. It's a bit dense. And so, you know, it could just have easily flopped like a giant whale uh, on the beach and we wouldn't be here, and it would sold 10,000 copies. I mean, I really, that was a, a scenario in my head. So I'm very lucky and very blessed, and I, and I have to remind myself that every day.
0: There's a video that I watched of you in an interview with a friend of yours. I think it was Shishi?
1: Shira?
0: Shira. And you had shared that you had approximately 80 jobs or over 80 jobs. I don't remember which one. And how dissatisfied you were. You didn't quite say it like this, but you didn't find your center of gravity there.
1: Right.
0: And this was the transition for you to write the 48 Laws of Power. Some people that will read this book will think parts of it are not only wise, but very shrewd. And I'm going to use the word cunning like they use in the I Ching. Parts of it are extremely cunning. But, you know, what's interesting, even though you're bringing it out of the closet, it doesn't necessarily mean that all this isn't going on. You know, it's going on, obviously, all over the world. You're the first one, uh, aside from Sen Tzu with The Art of War and the man who wrote The Craft of Power and the people that wrote the I Ching. You're the first one that's really bringing all this into the light of day in the modern world.
1: Well, you know, there's, um, there's one law, for instance, that people think is very evil, and it's law number seven. And basically it says, uh, get other people to do the work, but but always take the credit for it. <laughs> um, and I don't deny that it's, it's an evil uh, law, but in fact, it is absolutely a fact of life. It happens every single day. It happens every day in Hollywood. People are always stealing your ideas. But on another level, uh, you know, you watch television and you see Bill O'Reilly or whomever, they're not writing any of the material that they're doing. They've got teams of 20 researchers. All of their wit and wisdom is coming a lot of the times from other people. John Stewart's jokes are being written by other people. You don't know these, who, these, who these figures are. There's, there's 10 interns in a room, or, or people actually writers being paid. They, they're never getting credit. And so that's the guise that power has always used throughout the centuries. The president or the leader or the figure on television is giving out uh, this appearance of having all of this knowledge, wisdom, wit. And in fact, a lot of it comes from other people doing the hard, dirty work. And I'm just merely pointing out that when you enter the world, you need to be aware of that. People are going to steal your ideas. They're going to put your name on it. They're going to take the thing that you wrote and, and erase your name and put theirs on it. And here's what you have to do. You have to first not resent it, you have to know it, you have to be aware of it, and then maybe later on when you're powerful, you're going to be doing the same thing as well. So I'm, I'm getting, people are criticizing me for merely pointing out uh, actually a fact of nature of power that's been going on for centuries and is still going on. So,
0: Is it a fact of power or is it a fact of the dark side of power?
1: It is a fact of power because what happens when you, when you reach a position of prominence you're usually and this happens to, if you can be in your 30s, 40s, sometimes in your 20s. Uh you're you're the the amount of things that you have to do administratively go up and up and up and you can't be the person doing everything. You can't micromanage every aspect of your business, of your books, of your public appearances. So you need teams of people to help you out. And if you can give the appearance that you're the one in, in the front doing all of this work, you're everywhere, people see you, it looks very powerful. But if they see you doing, having to do all of the grunt work, it doesn't look very powerful. You look like you're sweating too much. So, you know, Oprah Winfrey is having her new network. She's here and she's there. And she's doing all of these things. You're not made aware of the th- hundreds of people who are slaving behind the scenes So that she can put on this network or put on this show. That's just simply the guise of power. It has to be that way once you reach a position of prominence.
0: And yet, wouldn't you also say that a lot of the quote leadership gurus from Warren Bennis and others that are out there, Peter Drucker, Tom Peters and others would probably say that it's better quote as a leader to do the opposite, which is to acknowledge all the people that have supported your venture and that have helped you become who you are. That's a different model, isn't
1: it? Well, there's there's several things. I mean, and I address this in the in the 33 Strategies of War. There's the internal and the external uh, directions of power. Externally, uh, you're presenting this image to the world of all of these great things that you're able to do on many different fronts. You're a person of power. And there's no need for you to be, for John Stewart to be thanking. Uh, I, I just did this joke, and I want to thank... Uh, you know, uh, Diane's others who wrote it for me. I mean, it'd be ridiculous. Um, But behind the scenes, internally, uh, your morale can suffer very much if you're the leader always stealing people's ideas. You're never getting credit for them. You're squashing people's creativity. So it's a delicate game that you're playing. And certainly you must learn to keep the morale of your soldiers going, to give them credit, to give them responsibility, to make them feel that they're... Uh, part of a team so on that level I wouldn't disagree with the management gurus but I would disagree uh, on the public front Um, you know I use this the the metaphor in the book of the great painter Rubens and Rubens would make uh, uh, you know the number of paintings that he produced in a year was astonishing and it, it, it people in Europe would believe that this man was insanely productive Well, if you visited his studio, you would see that there were like 50 people doing the paintings for Rubens, and he just simply, he was uh, supervising it, but he simply put his name there on it in the end, and it was that illusion of him being everywhere and painting so prolifically that was almost the source of his sort of, uh, of his reputation, and yet he had to hide that, because if you knew it, it, it would all vanish.
0: That's very interesting. Let's talk about law 10, because this dovetails on a lot of things. Infection, avoid the unhappy and the unlucky. Can I read your opening judgment? Mm -hmm. You can die from someone else's misery. Emotional states are as infectious as diseases. You may feel you are helping the drowning man, but you are only precipitating your own disaster. The unfortunate sometimes draw misfortune on themselves. They will also draw it on you. Associate with the happy and fortunate instead. I totally see the wisdom in this. I totally see the, quote, law of attraction underpinnings, the magnetic field, even in the quantum realm, agreeing with this. And yet, as a philosophy, I can see how someone may say, wow, that's really tough. But explain deeper your side of this.
1: Well, you know, this is the, the, uh, you have to read the law um, and not just read the paragraph. I'm not, right. not criticizing you here, but... Um,
0: well, I'm just giving uh, that to the audience contextually so they yeah, have no, no, a feel no, for the context.
1: I, I understand. But the the thing is, if you just read that or read the title, which some people do, it seems rather cruel. Uh, but if you read the stories in there you and you get the context, you understand that actually uh, I'm trying to describe something very real, a, a terrible problem that has affected a lot of people. People I know, it happens every single day, and it isn't really cruel at all. And what it's, I'm saying is, there are people who suffer misfortune that is completely beyond their 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 control, or they were born into terrible circumstances. And I'm not talking about them at all. They don't. They're not to be avoided. They're to be helped. But there is another class of people that I describe very. Uh, specifically, in that chapter, and they are people who draw their misfortune upon themselves. They are incredibly dramatic. They have they're empty, and they have some sort of deep emptiness inside, and they have to fill it with all of this this drama and these problems. They're deeply unhappy people, and they tend to make other people around them unhappy by just uh, by infection. And so what I'm trying to say is, these types of people, and I'm almost sure that everyone who is hearing this has had an experience like that. They're very difficult to know, uh, to recognize at first glance, because they can seem very caring and compassionate or very interesting, or as I said, uh, very dramatic, very emotional. And as you get to know them after weeks, after months, you become embroiled in all of their tragedies, their problems, their, they're just, their misery. And they bring you down. And it's like, there's nothing you can do to help them. This is the course of their life. And I'm trying to say, here's how to recognize these types of people. Maybe you'll never encounter them. That's great for you. But often you will. Here's how to recognize them. And they really, the only solution is if you recognize them, get away. Because the moment they get their tentacles into your life, they will tend to draw you down, and and you'll have a hard time getting away from it. And I show an example of a, someone from history, a woman, Lola Montes, who's very famous, in the 19th century, a, a, a beautiful woman um, who was, at first glance, incredibly seductive, and every single man that got involved with her ended up ruining his own life, including uh, King of Bavaria, who was forced to to abdicate because of his involvement of Lola Montes. So she's sort of the classic icon of infection. And um, these are the types of people to avoid. And if you can, associate with those who are the opposite, who seem to have a, a positive energy about them, who seem to attract good things to their life, uh, I did a book with 50 Cent, the rapper, and you wouldn't associate this at all with him. You, you probably associate uh, uh, violence and thuggery or whatever. In fact, 50 is a very positive person who's overcome incredibly difficult circumstances in life and is doing some really good things in uh, uh, charity-wise and the people who work for him. He's very charismatic, and being around him makes you confident, makes you excited and happy and enthused about being alive. Those are the people you want to associate with. And the Lola Montez is if you encounter them, you want to get the hell away.
0: That was very clear. That was very clear. And your chapter was very clear, but I just wanted to give the context for it because, you know, I've seen also on several videos on YouTube just show chapter headings. And yeah. I think people will get the wrong idea if they don't read them. Question about a big theme in your life and influence had to do with the book Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I wondered if you could just say a couple of sentences about that.
1: Well, I I read it when I was in high school. Back in my day, um, you had to read uh, uh, essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I don't know if that's still the case. And I read on Self-Reliance, and I thought it was so powerful, uh, particularly for my life, that I actually memorized the whole thing. Uh, I I can still remember bits and pieces now, but I would never be able to repeat that phenomenon now. Um, And what struck me uh, then was the kind of extreme clarity of this essay. And it's the fact that it's not that you're uh, completely independent in life, The fact that you were born and and born into a culture and a community and a family, you are dependent on other people. You are dependent on your mother and your father and your family and your community to survive. But a point is reached when you must develop, as far as humanly possible, your your own self-reliance and come to this existential point where you realize that essentially you were born alone world, and you are going to die alone, and you need to be accountable for as far as you possibly can for all of your actions, and to the degree that you're not, it's almost like your laziness, your desire to be dependent, your desire to blame other people in your life. You are always going to fall back on that crutch unless unless you embed in your head this idea that you can uh, have responsibility that you can take control of as many aspects of your life as possible. And so this was a uh, an essay that um, is so beautifully written because he was uh, a person who was also very religious, uh, transcendentalist, so he writes almost like a preacher, and it's, it's just beautiful, beautiful prose of uh, 19th century American writing. But it's just showing you that... Um, you don't have to worship other people. You don't have to think, oh, he's a genius or she's a genius. I'll never be able to reach that. It's in every human being has this potential. It's within you. And you have to simply become more self reliant. And there's a uh, this, my latest book with 50 Cent, uh, The 50th Law, uh, is just filled with the image of that essay and Ralph Waldo Emerson and the. Uh, the idea that you're afraid of, of taking this, this step because it's easy to always think that it's the other person that, that is ruining your life or circumstance. And you, this is like the, the antidote to that, that, that particular essay.
0: Don't you think that in not just the industrial age, but the age of electronics and the Internet and computers and cell phones and chips and this expedited electronic world don't you think that people are less self-reliant than they were in the past? In the 1800s, people were more self-reliant. You talked about that.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, uh, in America, it, it usually is a, sa- a situation where you, uh, where a country, a, a community, a city, a, a civilization is just starting out, and uh, things are, are difficult. People are, are experiencing difficult circumstances. And the United States in the 19th century was a time of of expansion. We were just starting to become a a world power. And so there was this pioneer spirit. Everybody was sort of on the same page. And there was wealth and things out there that you could get, but you had to work really hard to get there. And so it made you, you know, we talk about, for instance, Yankee ingenuity, which is simply an expression of New Englanders, because the the soil in New England is not very conducive to farming, uh, New Englanders traditionally had to become incredibly ingenious in order to, to get anything out of the soil. And so the expression came of Yankee ingenuity. Out of necessity, people become self reliant and become ingenious. And it's the story of civilization or empire after empire that when things, when you've reached that prosperity, you lose that sense of necessity. And closeness to your environment and to that sort of existential reality that you could fail in life, and people become softer and they they don't uh, they take things for granted, and so we've lost a lot of that pioneering spirit. Um, John F. Kennedy tried to bring that back a little bit in the 1960s with a concept like the new frontier, but in general, I think a lot of um, Uh, the malaise, to use the Jimmy Carter word that he suffered for, uh, that we're (laughs) suffering now is the sense that we've lost our our, our national sense of purpose, and we're drifting. Um, So people uh, don't have the the feel that they need to be self-reliant, that they need to be independent and take control of their lives. They can rely on technology. They can rely on that uh, Wikipedia to... Do their instant research for them. And I show very clearly in the 50th law that if you're not developing on your own, inside of you, uh, skills of, of self-reliance and knowing how, in, how to get things for yourself, there's going to come a point when you can't rely on the technology, you can't rely on other people, and you're going to suffer really bad for that. And so this is like uh, something as elemental as learning how to read, or learning math or algebra, or learning these skills, because you're going to need them for your whole life.
0: When you talked about one of the laws having to do with not outshining the master, law one, can you talk a little bit about how Galileo put that law into effect for himself with the Medici family?
1: Well, um, yeah, I mean that's the what I call the uh, observance of the law. In other words most people in life make the mistake of outshining the master we've all i've done it myself in our zeal to prove ourselves at a job or working for someone else we try so hard to please that we actually make the boss the master the person above us insecure that maybe that we're better than he or she is and we suffer for it. and i explained very in depth why and how that happens now what is, how How can you turn that around? Well, the idea is while you're at the same time trying to work as well as you possibly can and appear to be competent and even brilliant, you're making that master, that person above you, look better. And if you can create that illusion that through your work you're helping them, you're making their, public uh, their reputation better, you're going to rise to the top. You're going to secure your position. And Galileo... Uh, was a consummate courtier uh, p- or particularly <clears throat> early on in his career he later wasn 't and suffered for it um, and he wa- had discovered these moons of jupiter um, he he didn 't invent the telescope that 's sort of a a misconception he uh, the telescope existed then it was a sort of a child 's toy and he was the first person to actually take it and direct it towards the stars and he had detected these four moons orbiting Jupiter and but he, as a as a scientist he needed money he needed a patron he needed somebody to support his career the uh, Medici's were the the powers to be in in Florence and so what he did was very clever um they were essentially his master he named the stars after the Medici's um and sort of in ennobling them and giving them those names they were so pleased and impressed that they became uh, very powerful patrons <clears throat> of Galileo. I, I mean, it's a, it's a scene that happens throughout science, interestingly enough. I just discovered in my new research the man, William Harvey, who essentially discovered uh, the circulation of blood, the theory that blood circulates in the body. Uh, it was very controversial at the time because nobody believed it. And basically... He convinced King Charles uh, at the time and got his support by giving the analogy that that the king was the heart of the country and the people were the blood and it, everything circulated through the king. And by creating this analogy that made the king seem like even more powerful, uh, the king ended up sort of agreeing or not being uh, distressed by this discovery and becoming a, a major supporter of Harvey. So... Galileo wasn't the only person that did the strategy, but I thought it was the most interesting example of it.
0: It's certainly a profound and official form of flattery, is it not? (laughs) Of the highest order.
1: But it's, as I said, to come back to a theme, it's an indirect form of flattery. If Galileo had merely uh, discovered these moons and then said, oh, you Medici's, you're just wonderful people. I love you to death. Aren't you fantastic? They would see. Uh, you know, and then he wouldn't get anywhere. And that's what a lot of people make a mistake. Flattery is not, direct flattery is too obvious, and it also can make people uncomfortable. But if indirectly you can make them feel powerful, uh, well, there you go. And I, I talk in the book, for instance, uh, in, in just a little small note, um, you know, oftentimes, you uh, you take someone like an actor um, who's very well established and won, has won Oscars, but on the side, he or she likes to paint. If you are wanted to, to flatter this person or ingratiate them, you don't flatter them for their acting, because that's what everybody does. You flatter them for their painting, for what nobody else has been noticing in life. Um, So it's sort of, once again, the kind of indirect approach and being strategic. Some people might find it creepy or a little too cunning, but it's actually very effective.
0: What are your challenges right now in your life, and do you have challenges at this time? Well, you know,
1: challenges for me are not uh, what they were. I've got a a very wonderful life uh, as far as the the capacity to write uh, books. The challenge becomes more and more refined and subtle. So, what the danger that I could have fallen into was simply try to keep repeating the Forty-Eight Laws of Power, um, and you know, making um, you know, kind of cashing in on its success and doing little books that uh, that are very quickly written and I get money for, but sort of uh, give the veneer because of the title and cover that there's something interesting there. And so I learned, I, uh, my idea was I'm not going to fall into that trap because even though you might succeed in the short term, in the long term you ruin your reputation and people when they see your books, they, they've they lost the respect, they don't think, hmm, oh, maybe this is another attempt to make money. I have to change each one. I have to kind of personally so that I'm interested and challenged and also for my readers, that I'm giving them something new that's not in the other books, it's totally different, um, so that they come to think that every time one of my books comes out, they're, they're getting something that's not just rehashed. Um, and that's, you know, it's exhausting um, to, to, to be constantly trying to do that. So I'm my next book, um, I'm going through that process again, and it's very tiring, but in the end it's so rewarding to be in control of your destiny and to write books that I have absolutely nothing to complain about. I enjoy the challenge, but that's 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 what, uh, I forget the word that you used, but that's sort of what I'm facing.
0: Have you ever wanted to just step away from writing? Well,
1: no, because you know what happens is when you reach a certain age, uh, I turned 50 recently, um, you realize that your days are numbered. I don't mean it to be melodramatic, uh, I, I could live to 100, and, and I hope to. Um, but I could, you know, die tomorrow. And even when you're 20, you could die tomorrow. Um, and so there's a sense of the devil is at your heels. And uh, I, there are these ideas that have been haunting me uh, for my whole life uh, that I've not been able to express. I'm going to get it one of uh, get that out in my next book, and then in the one after that. And I'll, if I suddenly die tomorrow and I didn't get to express those, I would feel very unsatisfied. So I, I have to, I have to get these things out. Uh, and then maybe by the, this will be my fifth book that comes out. Maybe by the sixth, or seventh book, I will take a deep breath and realize, well, oh, all right, maybe I, I could write a play or a novel or or, or something else, and I don't have that that sense of, I, I I better express this before I leave the planet.
0: Your parents must be kvelling. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I understand that word. I um, know you do.
0: Uh, and kvelling, ladies and gentlemen, means so proud that they're like falling all over themselves. That's a Yiddish word, kvelling. There you go, Robert.
1: It's the opposite of kvetching.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, uh,
1: yeah. Um, well, my, my father passed away 10 years ago, but he he was there to see the success of the first book, and uh, uh, it was interesting because he, he never said anything to me directly. Uh, uh, that just was his style. But after he passed away, uh, uh, we were at the funeral, and uh, one of his colleagues said, told me you know, that he carried around with him everywhere uh, this um, article that had appeared in a major newspaper about the books. And so I learned indirectly how proud he was, but he never said it to me. But that was even more powerful to know that. And then my mother, who is still alive, um, is, is, is cavelling an awful lot. It's, it's almost hard to take, but she is cavelling.
0: <laughs> you know you have to let her have that. you got to let the mamas have it, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about Napoleon Bonaparte. You seem to like to talk about him and to write about him and share with us what you've learned from Napoleon Bonaparte's history.
1: Well, he's the major figure in the Thirty Three Strategies of War, um, and uh, basically, I, I in each book I sort of identify kind of a major icon. Uh, in the, in the Forty Eight Laws of Power, there was the great French minister Talleyrand, and to some degree Louis the Uh, In the Art of Seduction, I had uh, Casanova and uh, Cleopatra. In the war book, it was Napoleon, and basically because he's the greatest genius of war that ever really existed, if you want to use a word that's connected with something rather diabolical. And um, basically because he had a, a sense of strategy that was uncanny. It would be like how we think of Mozart, who was composing at the age of very early age and was sort of a wunderkind. It seems like unnatural almost. We can't even understand it. Well, Napoleon had that for war. So the task I gave myself was to figure out why. I didn't want to just mystify it and say I was a genius. and That doesn't help anybody. I wanted to explain it. I wanted to make it human. Why was he so good at it? So that we could understand it and maybe we could learn from it. And so I had to read, because uh, nobody really did that in any of the books that I read. They would sort of pick at the edges and, and sort of insinuate this is what was, he was so good at. But nobody atta- uh, connected all of the dots that satisfied me, at least. And so I read hun- hundreds of, well, thousands of pages of biographies and, and came to the conclusion that, that it was actually very simple. Napoleon was a genius of organization, and it sounds very mundane and banal, but I I firmly believe that that is the essence of his power. And what I mean was, he had an ability, he had a brain, a mind like a computer. He could absorb massive amounts of information, and he did, about the enemy, about his own army, about the technology at the time, about cannons and gunfire. He had spies uh, all over Europe giving him detailed information about the uh, the enemy's army. And with this massive amount of information that he had, and he took notes and put them all on note cards, etc., he was able to organize this material in a very efficient manner and use that uh, to come up with incredibly brilliant strategies, not only for how to defeat the enemy, but also for how to organize his own army in the most efficient manner. And so when he entered into battle, he was so much more prepared than the enemy. He knew more about them than they knew about their own army. He knew more about the terrain, uh, about uh, what he could expect from his own forces. And with this level of preparation and organization, he overwhelmed Europe again and again and again. And then finally a point was reached where he couldn't uh, surmount the difficulties. He couldn't organize Uh, his ideas and his army, because he was facing too many crises, many of them his own doing, and that kind of led to his downfall. His his genius, he kind of reversed itself, and he, he, he suffered a terrible decline. But to me, that was the essence of his creativity. You don't think of organization and creativity in the same sentence. But if you read the Strategy of war, you'll see that it, he was intensely creative when it came to organizing the massive amount of details that, that waging a war require. To me, that's, that's the essence of Napoleon.
0: In the 48 Laws of Power, you talk about the use of surrender as a tactic to transform weakness into power, and I think this is extremely instructive but it doesn't fit with our paradigm of how we're supposed to proceed with things. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Well, um, you know, sometimes, as I said earlier, people associate power with uh, aggression and violence, and I'm saying sometimes yielding and giving in is actually the superior form of power. Um, And, uh, you know, the classic example would be... uh, Uh, Gandhi's use of passive resistance, uh, where surrendering literally and refusing to fight back, actually becomes a kind of a weapon. Um, And it became a weapon so powerful that it essentially drove the English out of India. I talk in the book of an example that some people might not like, but I thought was very instructive. was about Bertolt Brecht, the great um, German playwright, who um, was called um, before the House Un-American activities, excuse me, I don't remember the exact name, in the United States, accused of being a communist sympathizer. And um, all of the people that had been called up before, Hollywood writers, etc., who were later blacklisted, essentially took a pretty aggressive stand demonstrating uh, their dislike of the committee's existence. And Brecht instead used a version of the surrender tactic. he It was almost a, a kind of superior irony. He was extremely ironic in the way only a kind of a European could be in dealing with sort of uh, America. Um, and he didn't insult the, the members. He was almost... Um, uh, kind of indirectly insulting them, but they didn't realize it. And in the end, uh, they let him go because um, uh, he was trying to get out of the United States and he could have ended up in prison. By taking the surrender tactic, they let him go. He returned to Europe and he wrote many more plays. And the idea was, what was more important in this situation? Was it kind of making a, a point to the public but then sort of suffering for it and then not being able to work? Or in the long run, what was important was having a platform to, to write your plays and to be productive and to get the last laugh in here. And so he used decided it was better to surrender in the moment and then in the long run uh, get the last word in. And I found that very powerful, and I think that's sort of a classic example of using the surrender tactic.
0: When asking for help, Appealing to people's self-interest and never to their mercy or gratitude, Law 13. It kind of feels, when I hear that, that people are mostly wired. Human beings are wired for their own self-interest, and they can't really help it. Is Law 13 an acknowledgement of the human condition on your part? Is that your way of translating that there's a human condition, and this is pretty much what it most of the time is?
1: Well... You know, I don't mean to say that uh, you can't appeal to people's sense of compassion. Uh, People do that all the day, and we have charitable organizations that exist. So I'm not trying to say that the world is 100% governed by self-interest. I would find that overly cynical or just cynical. But on the other hand, we are always uh, underestimating – we are underestimating – the level of self-interest that governs people's decisions. And so uh, I use the classic example in there of ancient Greece. Of um, uh, There was a, a group of people who were trying to make an alliance with Athens uh, to become a power on the peninsula. And, you know, one group of people appealed to the grad, sense of gratitude that the Athenians must feel because they had helped Athens before in previous battles. And this other group, a different city, said, it just simply said, look, we're going to be able to give you this A, B, and C if you join us in an alliance. And naturally they chose the one that appealed to Athens' sense of self-interest. And the idea is that you know, oftentimes we think, well, we, we helped someone do something before, and now, now now they owe us a favor. But people n- very all, quickly will forget any sense of gratitude or what they owe you. They'll think, well, I really didn't do that much for you, or that was in the past. You must think, if you're trying to get someone to help you or do something for you, you must put yourself in their shoes, and it's not easy, and you must say to yourself, what is it that they want? Not what I want, which is what we always do. Well, what, is, what do they want? If I can think of how in some way I can appeal to their self-interest that in helping me, they're actually doing something for themselves, then you're going to win the argument. And it's very unnatural for us to do it. It takes a lot of thinking and planning, but it's the much higher level uh, of strategizing. And understanding that other people have self-interest involved and you're appealing to them is not cynical. It's not ugly. It's simply uh, uh, um, admitting the fact that you understand that they have their own needs and desires, and you're going to appeal to that. It's actually, to me, a, a, a pretty good gesture in some ways.
0: When I read the chapter that talked about what happened with Tesla, which many of us love and appreciate and are sad, his inventions are not in full throttle today. Uh, at least some of them are, but they're involved in black projects and not in the things that society get to have access to. What happened with him and Edison was very instructive. I wanted you to share something about that, and I want to know what the ultimate message of that chapter was, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Well, that was the cha- the law that I mentioned earlier about get other people to do the work yes. always take the credit, and essentially that is what Edison had done uh, with Tesla. I mean, Tesla. I don't. Uh, you know, I've been doing research on Thomas Edison now for my for the fiftieth law, right? And then for my new book, um, and he's not really, you know, in the first book, I might have painted him as like a, a kind of a, a villain in a way, and he really isn't. Um, he was actually a very brilliant man, but but Tesla was much more brilliant. Let's Indeed, put it that way, Tesla was the one of the great uh, creative scientific thinkers of our time supposedly he had a, a mind uh, that was just so different and and, and and amazing he could solve an entire mechanical problem in his head in other words he could imagine the bit of machinery that was that he wanted to create and he could imagine visually visualize inside all of the machinery and the gears and the and the, and the things that went into it before he literally put it on paper um, so he was somehow a strangely gifted man. And um, he had some brilliant ideas about electricity. Um, I forget, I always confuse AC and DC. Uh, One of them Edison had supported, which is not what we have now. Tesla was the one who had sort of seen the future. But when uh, Edison had got Tesla to work for him, uh, he could see that the man was brilliant, and he simply took a lot of his ideas and um used them for his own purposes and the the main goal point of the of the uh, chapter was edison ended up with his career that was pretty glorious pretty wonderful got everything that he wanted uh, was a very powerful inventor figure and tesla lived a life of misery he was a very unhappy man who died in extreme poverty i have a quote in there not extreme but he, he did not d- do well uh, you know that he was being honored near the end of his life, and he gave a uh, speech in which he said, "Well, you're honoring me now. Why weren't you there five years ago? I have no, no money, no support. Basically, because he didn't understand the power game. He didn't understand that he had to be a courtier. He didn't understand that he had to control uh, the the the. the uh, he had to be the one." Uh, administering his own ideas and not be serving other people or be more clever about it. He was a terrible at the power game, and it's, a, it's sort of a sad parable of what happens to people who are talented but don't understand that life can be very political. And Edison, on the other hand, knew, was, was very gifted. He, he's not, he was not um, stupid. He was actually very very brilliant. But he was not a great... He, his mathematics was mediocre, He wasn't uh, an Einstein, let's put it that way, or a Tesla, but he knew how to work with people. He was a real good motivator, and he knew how to get the right teams of people together. And that's who ended up having success. So I'm trying to say in a broader metaphor, uh, if you want to be happy and have some control over your destiny, you might want to pay attention to the Edison model and not make the mistakes that Tesla made.
0: That's very wise. Do you have any concerns right now that are demonstrated in your writing about where the world is going, where the planet is going, where the politics, the global politics are going? Does anything worry you or concern you? I know we talked about industrialization or the electronics and people not being self-reliant, but is there anything else that's concerning you?
1: Well, there's a lot concerning me, uh, but I have, uh, you know, uh, I'm a big believer in uh I've uh, been supporting environmental causes for, for years now, and uh, gravely concerned about that. Uh, and uh, Global warming, which I don't I don't believe is a myth, is extremely real. Um, <clears throat> but you know, my idea is to always get at the try and get at the root of the problem, uh, and not see the surface, uh, or at least what I think is the surface. And so, in applying that idea um, to of what's afflicting us now? Um, in my next book, I am trying to kind of get at that um, and to show that it maybe it's a, a way of thinking um, that is uh, has gone astray. Um, that we, you know, we developed these um, brains, the human brain, over the course of three million years, maybe six million, or you can go back to primates 48 million years for a purpose, uh, which is this is an incredible instrument for solving problems and for connecting ourselves to our immediate environment and uh, uh, using that as a way, as I said, to solve problems. And there was a process uh, that we went through whenever we... uh, attacked a problem in, in, in the environment or tried to invent something or create something. And I believe we're losing sense of that. Um, some of it is technological because of technology. Some of it is is uh, cultural, uh, etc. Um, and that's what I want to bring us back to, uh, particularly in my next book, um, a sense of if you follow this path, you do A, B, and C, you learn something very deeply, you go deeply into a field, you learn how to connect all the various different fields of human knowledge, you learn how to solve problems, and the, the point we're reaching is we create more problems than we know how to solve, and it reaches a, a tipping point, to call quote Malcolm Gladwell, where we're overwhelmed. And so I want to get at that kind of, what's underneath, what has gone astray, in our thinking process, not not necessarily morally or what our politicians are doing, because I think it's a problem that each one of us individually is facing and that we can't really point a finger and say it's this person's fault or that person's fault. It's all of our faults in a way.
0: How long does it take you to write a book like this? This is almost 500 pages, The 48 Laws of Power, and all of your books are packed how long did it take you? Do you remember to write the Forty Eight Laws of Power?
1: Forty Eight Laws of Power was an anomaly. Uh, I said before it, it was kind of like a, uh, an orange that was. Uh, I'm thinking of oranges because they're on my tree right now. <laughs> it was so ripe uh, that when that when you took it off the tree and cut it open, the juices just sort of flowed out. I was so ripe to do that book that it only took me two years, and that meant um, ri- researching literally close to 300 books, taking notes, organizing, writing, editing. Because I I essentially worked uh, night and day without stop, I was so motivated. Then I started slowing down. The Art of Seduction took three years. Uh, The War Book uh, took about three years. So now that seems to be what it is for me as I get older and slower. It's a little more like three years of of researching and writing and, and editing and all that.
0: I purchased The Art of Seduction, and I want to do a separate segment with you on that. It really deserves its own okay. segment. <laughs> sure. One last question to you about courting attention. Uh huh. This is a common public relations theme throughout the world, actually. Yeah. And I was wondering if you would share a little bit about that law. Well,
1: um, it's one of those laws that's specific to your circumstance. So it says court attention at all costs. but there are moments in life uh, when you don't want to court attention, when you want to kind of disappear. So let's not take this too literally. and right. Say, oh well, I, I must, uh, you know, wear a, a bright yellow shirt and go out in the street and get everybody's attention. <laughs> it's not that it's not that stupid. It's it's more subtle than that. It's more like if you're starting your career, you're in the beginning phases. Um, the game, at least for power, is to gain uh, people's attention. We're all distracted. We're paying attention to a thousand different things. And if in your work environment, for instance, uh, you're kind of a non-entity, that's where you're going to remain. Um, even, you can be as brilliant as Nikola Tesla, but if you're not getting the right attention, it doesn't matter. And so... Here are some various strategies depending on your circumstances for courting the right attention, how to stand out uh, from the crowd, but you don't want to stand out too much because then you're going to look like a, a you know just a, a straight a weirdo you know you have to stand out just enough so that uh, people admire you and pay attention um, So it's basically you know about strategies for doing that and some of it is uh, a kind of the icon of that law, if you could say that, was P.T. Barnum, um, who's a figure that is rather prominent in the 48 laws of power. And because I say that power has a lot to do with appearances, the human animal, fortunate, unfortunately, probably, uh, judges a lot on appearances. If we see someone looking or acting a certain way, we assume that it's real. And so a lot of People in power are actually magicians and con artists. They create an appearance. And P.T. Barnum knew how to entertain people and get attention in an extremely entertaining manner. Um, Sort of a genius at it. And sometimes he would be extremely colorful and wicked, and sometimes he would be extremely subtle. And so I sort of point out examples in his life uh, about, you know, here's sort of a model to follow. He had a, gr- a great museum in New York uh, with all of his sort of freak show things in it. Um, and he was always trying to get people to go inside the museum. And so one one thing he did, for instance, was uh, on the balcony uh, of a uh, some kind of place next door to his museum, he placed a band um that was like the worst band he could find, and the music was so awful and uh was so irritating that people ran into the museum to escape the noise and that 's how he got them inside because <laughs> he knew once inside they would be entranced, so he knew indirectly and strategically how to get people inside his museum, and that sort of uh, I kind of follow that model and show you some other examples
0: that 's wild that 's a wild story. How did you hear about The Craft of Power, the book by R.G.H. Sue? Very few people even know about that book.
1: Yeah, it's a weird book. It came out in the 70s, I believe. And
0: yeah.
1: It's pretty much out of print, I believe, for quite a long time. Um, and when I was uh, doing the research, um, I back before really you could do internet research, uh, we're talking 1996, 97, um, you, know, you still had to use libraries and I would go scour the power sections, anything with the word power in it. Um, it was kind of a very tedious process. And through that, I discovered the book and then ordered a copy of it and, and loved it. I mean, for every 10 books that had the word power in it, they were absolutely terrible. Uh, and uh, well, I threw them away, but that one was a really good book.
0: Yeah, that's a keeper. I'm sure you read The Book of Five Rings.
1: Yes, uh, that's uh, Miyamoto Musashi. Yes. Uh, he figures very prominently in the 33 Strategies of War. Um, the brilliant uh, Japanese samurai strategist who wrote the Book of Five Rings just before he died. Um, and, you know, as I said, he's, he was one of the most brilliant uh, uh, samurai swordsmen. And his, his stories... The Book of Five Rings is a great book, highly recommended, but the stories of Musashi's life are almost even more interesting and fun and telling, and I narrate a lot of those in the war book because he was, if you can imagine, as a samurai, he faced um, sword uh, one-on-one duels in which it was basically to the death, and you know, I don't know how many times he survived because he was just an insanely clever strategist. Um, So his book is great, and the stories of his life are are just incredibly entertaining.
0: Word has it that he was a great tea maker, that he would make tea, sit down and have tea, before he would go out in every single fight.
1: Well, that I didn't know, uh, but I would believe it because he was very uh, aesthetically inclined. The whole tea ceremony, um, you know, was imbued in, in Japanese culture at that time. And um, people who were great swordsmen, all of the crafts were related. So making tea, uh, being a samurai, a flower arrangement, whatever, they were all kind of thought of as interrelated. And the idea of, of kind of grinding your own green tea, which is literally what they would do, um, was probably a really good way to concentrate the mind and relax him before he went into, in, into battle. Uh, I imagine that was probably part of what he was be doing.
0: You're a very interesting man, Robert Green. Is anything else you'd like to share with the audience today?
1: No, oh, I mean, uh, you know, the the we didn't need to talk about the seduction book. We can talk about that again later. And then my, the the fiftieth law, um, my most recent book. Um, I, I highly recommend. In that, it's not. Uh, this, as I said, was co-written with the rapper 50 Cent. It's not a biography. It's really more an essay about uh, how to deal with fear in life, because I think that's a major uh, issue nowadays in wake of 9-11. But uh, in general, people are are just, I think, a little too fearful. Um, and this is sort of a meditation on uh, the 50th Law is on how you can overcome your fears because it's extremely human. He he has them, I have them, and sort of the power that is waiting there for you if you sort of take a little bit bolder approach to life. Uh, So, you know, that's that's a book. If you want something a, a bit inspirational on that level, I would recommend
0: it. I'd like to read that. Thank you so much for being our guest, Robert. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Robert Green, the author of The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law. If you'd like to order the book, you can go to powerseductionandwar.com. Robert, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Me too.